You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Hello, Canada and hockey fans from the United States and Newfoundland, and welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1995 film, Net Worth. And if you didn't understand by that intro, this is a hockey movie. Yeah, and a hockey movie produced in Canada by the the CBC. CBC... Yes, because we've always tried to do every opening season for each of the big four leagues. We try to do it. We've done one for MLB. A couple months ago, we did one for football. Now we're doing one for the NHL. And this is a very, very hidden, hard-to-find gem. It's like we mentioned, it's a made-for-TV movie by the BBC. I mean, CBC. CBC, sorry. Yeah. In Canada, 1995, Net Worth. And the film is telling the story of terrible Ted Lindsay. And his attempts to form a the Players Association and the NHL Players Union back in the 1950s. Yep. At this time, and the NHL, um, just like pretty much almost every major sports league at the time, they did not have a union. The owners had pretty much final say in the players' destinations and choices. They controlled their salaries. They, you know, they could not, they were not free agents. This was well before that. They really had um, not a lot of power. Right. And Lindsay, after um, it's, he goes to a meeting with um, a special meeting thing at a high school in Detroit with uh, Bob Feller, who was not a Tigers player, but he was with the Indians Hall of Famer. Yeah. And he tells him that even though the MLB is, this is MLB, this is still a decade away from the Kurt Flood, um, ruling and kind of when things started to change so he's telling him like even as bad as we've got it we're still not as bad as you guys are yeah and he he makes a crucial point that uh uh we got we got whatever improvement we did in mlb uh due to basically sicking a lawyer on the owners and Mm -hmm. he suggests that they do the same thing this harkens back to uh, eight men out right uh it's it's kind of i guess a little disheartening as a sports fan that uh, so many of the films we've been doing on the on the major uh, sports have to do with uh, uh, unethical behavior on the part of either uh, coaches or, or ownership, and uh, these two these two films stand out: Eight Men Out and this one, Net Worth. Which I I agree, it's a gem. It's a little unknown gem. Really tells a story I literally had no clue about until you suggested this film, mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, again, it tells us a story very similar to the Eight Men Out story, in that uh, the players had to get together and essentially uh, um, exert some political pressure and possible legal pressure to to wrest some amount of control from the owners over their own lives. And uh, uh, it it's it's a masterful job i really like it and i like the fact also that for some somehow or another they were able to and i guess the explanation is the film was made in canada um but they managed to find 
a set of actors for the hockey players, every one of which looks like he is actually a hockey player, can skate, can puck handle. Uh, there are no clever edits. These guys are these guys are <laughs> good uh, enough. There, there to... are some edits during the hockey games I found a little bit silly, and when you compare the hockey scenes in this movie to probably the best hockey film, Miracle, and I think Miracle does it a lot better. But this is somewhat yeah. kind of nitpicky. It's not yeah. really the point. Of yeah, the th- those of edits are made for dramatic purposes, and also I think trying to create a, a little bit of a sense of a 50s uh, nostalgia to it. But in terms of editing to hide lack of skating or puck handling skills by players, I didn't see any of that. These guys actually yeah. can skate and puck handle. So my it question was, immediately arose. The main arose thing was, I was thinking was silly was when they do the you know the zooming puck. I thought that oh, was yeah, yeah. a little that bit was silly. silly. Uh, you I didn't agree. see that in Miracle. Yes. But like I said, that's not really that's the point not, of the movie. Yeah, but none of it was done in order to hide actors who can't skate worth a lick mm-hmm. all of these guys were fairly good actors and can't skate worth a lick you know? i'm sure they're all canadians yeah so I, I think they that's have a safe bet a yeah. Bit. yeah but you mentioned about this because this is the 50s this is still the original six era of the nhl i mean there's now because we just had the seattle kraken start so there are now 32 teams in hockey yes up until 1967, there were only six. You had Montreal Canadiens, Toronto Maple Leafs, New York Rangers, Chicago Blackhawks, Detroit Red Wings, and Boston Bruins. Mm-hmm. So there's only six teams, but you, re- you read about sort of this good old boy's ownership. Yes. I mean, Con Smythe, that's a name. He ran the Maple Leafs for years, and he's one of the main antagonists of this story. Yes. But what I, I didn't know about until recently was the Norris family yeah. and how a monopoly they held as owners over the entire American teams. Yeah, he's uh, James Norris is the father. He's passed on by the time this move, this story yeah. takes place. Yes, but he was the main owner of the Red Wings. But he had ownership shares and basically had the power also in Boston, New York, and Chicago. Yeah. And you just think about—I will remember hearing about this. Like, this has got to be illegal. That's a monopoly. (laughs) And they even bring up that his son, James Jr., has also a monopoly in boxing. And they talk about extortion, and they go things off the books. And there's a lot of shady things. Is they don't want to pay the players, right? And it's. And, but you you hear that like everybody knows the name Con Smythe because of the Con Smythe Trophy given to the postseason MVP. Yeah, you hear the Norris Trophy, which is that's defense, defensive player, yeah. defenseman. And you, you, these guys are all in the Hall of Fame, like they show at the end. And yeah. you're thinking the bad things they did. I don't know if they deserve that sort of honor. Oh yeah, and and then uh, not to mention uh, the guy that was head of the NHL at the time. This is 1957. Uh, Clarence Campbell. The Campbell Cup is named after him. And uh, the po- the movie makes a ber- very uh, pointed effort at the end to show each of the cast members, right, the character's name, obviously, and then say, Hockey Hall of Fame, uh, what year they were inducted. to the- Every one of these owners was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Every one of the players... Uh, uh, that is a main character at any rate was also inducted into the hall of fame, but it, 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 it does raise a very interesting question. You're right. Um, uh, given, uh, the, the collusion and the obvious and intentional effort to hide information 
not only from the players, but from anybody that attempted to represent the players, as did the lawyer Milton Mound. Also, we have to remember the FBI. <laughs> they are looking into um, the, the connections of the Norris family uh, with uh, organized crime. They're also looking into uh, what kind of possible connections they have via that connection with uh, corruption in boxing. So we have to remember at this time in the United States, and also Canada, boxing was a huge sport. It has pretty much devolved into being a, a, a sport of minor importance now. But it was a huge sport, and there was all kinds of book running on boxing matches. Oh, yeah, the cliche of the fighter taking the fall. That's been done a thousand times yeah. in movies. Yeah. yeah, so all of this is going on, and these guys have uh, made a great deal of effort to, to hide hide their books. They even intimate in the in the story here that they have two sets of books. One, the actual books that only the commissioners of the NHL are allowed to look look at, and then those that they offer for public consumption, but even those they offer grudgingly, and they're doctored in any case to make it look like these are selfless guys that, for the love of the game, are running in red uh, so that they can... They can uh, uh, give American and, and, and Canadian hockey fans what they want and, and allow these boys to play a game they love. And it's just all a bunch of malarkey. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's interesting that that's still part of the mythos of the NHL. You know, you, you often hear in commentary, you know, these are just Canadian lads. They just love playing the game. And that's true. Um, but to see the the extent to which they took advantage of that, uh, for their own gain and and playing this two-faced game with the players, which uh, were, were the reason for the success of the, the, the league at that time and continue to be, and not giving them even a modicum of a fair share of the, uh, the take, the ticket take, uh, it, it, it's... It, you just you just have to say you want to petition the NHL to take those cup names away from those guys, give them to somebody else. Ted Lindsay deserves a cup named after him. I believe I there is something named after him. I can't. I can't yeah, remember. it's some sort of an award, and I honestly don't remember what it is. But they should, for instance, uh, uh, I would suggest uh, um, naming. The uh, trophy for the offensive player of the uh, of the uh, league after him. It would seem to make sense. More fitting would be the best rabble rouser because yeah. he's called terrible Ted for a reason. Yeah, and that even that opening scene when he's mocking the um, Toronto Maple Leafs fans by like point like shooting a gun, like acting as stick yeah. as a gun, like which that really happened yes, because they were sending death threats to him. Yes. And so he was having a little fun as he just kicked them out of the playoffs. Right. Year. Yeah. Oh. Uh, classic Ted Lindsay too, by the way. But um yeah, it it's a great story. I, I really like it. Um and if you don't mind, I mean we all, we have to do our philosophical tie in here. Mm -hmm. And uh one of the things that's kind of interesting is when you have uh, certain famous philosophical concepts or thought experiments that you want to discuss in a class, right? You're always looking for real-life examples that would illustrate quite well. And one of the famous thought experiments is uh, it's one that's been the premise of other stories, but it's the story of the so-called Ring of Gyges. 
Have you heard of the Ring of Gyges? No. no. Okay, the Ring of Gyges is a thought experiment that Plato came up with, and it's included in the uh, uh, his probably his most famous work, The Republic, which is a wide-ranging discussion on uh, political philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, you name it, he's done it in that one. But one, the whole discussion revolves around uh, trying to get get uh, people's head around the, uh, a good working definition of justice. And one of the famous thought experiments he has in there as they are discussing uh, what the relationship is between morality and justice and self-interest is this uh, story of uh, the Ring of Gyges. And it's a short story. It's, it only takes a page or two in the whole dialogue. But the basic idea with the Ring of Gyges is, uh, and tell me when you figure out which movie, uh, which story capitalized on this, um, it's a ring that this shepherd finds when he's out, out and about doing his work for the king. He's you know, tending the uh, king's flocks, and he finds his ring in this uh, big cavern. There's a crypt or something in there, right? Uh, sarcophagus in there and there's a big skeleton there's a shiny ring so he takes the ring off and he's going oh wow i got an interesting story to tell the guys when i get back to the palace the other shepherds we all hang around after work and talk Mm -hmm. and so forth so he puts the ring on and makes his way back and uh lo and behold he discovers as he uh uh, attempts to uh comes back to the group sits around the fire or something uh, he's fiddling with that ring, and he turns the signet of the ring toward the inside of his palm. And then he notices that the people that are his best buddies uh, act as if he's not there. They can't see him. They can't hear him. He's What's trying to talk to him. Frodo? There you go. Yeah. You figured it out already. So it's it's a ring that causes invisibility, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the purpose of the thought experiment is to... Uh, uh, get us to think about what exactly the relationship is between self-interest and morality. And the point uh, that uh, two of the guys in the dialogue are trying to drive home is that morality is sen- and, and, and justice, right, is essentially a, uh, a, a set of conventions that are adopted by human beings because it's the second best alternative in terms of just getting what you want when you want uh, uh, and and we we can't do that because we're all visible, <laughs> right? And more or less equal in uh, our powers to acquire things and protect them once we do have them. Um, we realize at some level that given that that's the case, uh, we're going to have to adopt some social conventions, some laws, uh, either morality or simply legalistic laws, and follow them because if we all, all or most of us follow those laws, um, we'll end up um, in a relatively secure and stable situation in terms of our personal interests and, and security. Um, but that's all there is to it. There's nothing else to morality than that. It's like, like I said, a second best alternative for the selfish. And the ring asks you to consider, well, what would happen if somehow or another people acquired the ability to, as it were, insulate themselves from the negative consequences of simply behaving selfishly all the time, right? This guy has this ability now with this ring. So uh, in that story, Gyges quickly figures out, man, I can take advantage of this. He works his way into the palace. He and the queen uh, actually uh, kind of 
conspire together and kill the king and he becomes the king, right? So we're always looking for examples that are somewhat like that, that are actually uh, actual uh, real examples. And it really struck my mind when I was watching this film. Uh, this set of owners is in that kind of a situation. It's not quite a ring of gaijis, but through a careful manip manipulation of bylaws, uh, skillful use of bribery, uh, deception, and hiding information, they have acquired, if not perfect immunity, a, a sufficient amount of immunity to allow them to do what they want, when they want, in order to extract as much profit as possible from this cash cow they have created, the NHL. So it's very much, it really struck me, it's very much like that. And there's another aspect of that story that, or that dialogue that I, it struck me as well as a real-life example of something else Plato has us consider in that dialogue. And he, he asks, he has one of his characters in, in that dialogue ask a very pointed question. What would you rather be? And, you, and answer honestly. Don't an answer what uh, you expect people to... Don't answer in a way that you expect other people would, would wish you to answer. Answer honestly. Would you rather be a, an unjust person able to profit from that injustice, that bad behavior, while appearing to be perfectly just? So you'll be able to derive the benefits of that appearance well as well people will love you would you rather be that guy or would you rather be the truly just person that nevertheless appears to be unjust right mm -hmm. and uh, the the point of the question is he says if you're honest you'll want to be the first guy the one that's unjust derive uh, uh, reaping the benefits of that injustice but loved by everybody because because you appear to be just boy i i got the feeling that these nhl owners were that in that camp and they were forcing the latter role on ted Lindsay and these players once they started to stand up for themselves especially ted when when uh, you have jack adams falsifying that that contract to make it look like he's a bad guy man he's He's making twice what Gordie Howe is making, and he's just stirring up this trouble for his own selfish ends and so forth and making him look to be an unjust man, right? Uh, and worthy of contempt, you know what I'm saying? So it's very interesting. These are the two things that really engaged me about that film. And it makes you wonder, with these owners, were they always like this, as even in the early days of the NHL, or did over time, as they grew in popularity, did they become that? Because, you know, we said the main antagonist of this movie is probably Jack Adams, who yes. was the uh, general manager of the Red Wings, and he was previously the coach for a number of years. And on one hand, if you look at the success... As coach slash GM, he led them to seven championships from 35 to 55. Yep. No other team in hockey had as much as the Wings did during that stretch. Yep. So in some hand, and he was also credited for building up the farm system. He was also, you know, he did a lot of 
the things. One of the things, like any players who were single and had no children, they would board at a place called Ma Shaw's in Detroit. So yeah. we did a lot of innovative things, and that's like you have to give him credit for that. But then when you see him do this, do you think he just became so close-minded and see how do these people think that they're ungrateful for all the things he did for this league yeah because uh and it's a good point i mean he's been in the league since 35 right and oh to the 20s the 20s even as a player oh interesting didn't know that um so he's he's kind of got that uh, i guess you would think long-termers almost parents perspective on the league and you would think the the other guys too. So they're they, they it, it, somewhere in the back of their minds they're thinking they're protecting this great thing they've they've um, created. Now my read, and I'm not totally conversant in the history, is uh, that they probably did not start out this corrupt. Um, but as the league flourished and developed, and it started uh, becoming a cash cow, um, I. I I think that that functioned again something like the power <laughs> that the Ring of Gyges uh, presents. It's, it's kind of, the attractive pole of the magnet is the fact that the money's rolling in, um, but also um, as the money does roll in, and as they realize that the sheer amount of money they have buys them power. Uh, through uh, an ability to bribe, but also to just be able to stand up to any kind of legal challenges, period, because now you can afford the lawyers, right? It gives them at least a temptation. Uh, you might even say it's an inevitable development to uh, 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 think that they, they now can do more things, get away with more things than they could earlier in the process. And this is probably one of those frog in the hot water scenarios where they maybe they didn't quite see this happening. Maybe in Adam's case, but also maybe in the owner's case, they didn't see this happening on a day to day basis. They didn't see this change in their character because it was gradual and it took decades. And at some level, because of the gradualness of it, um, it allows them to not only adopt the rationalization that they're protecting the uh, league and looking out for the uh, uh, benefit of the players by controlling their pension for them, not only adopting that, but at some level also believing it. They've got to the point where they think as there, there's some sort of, as it were, experts, parents, again, um, mm -hmm. that are in a role because they are, quote, the experts or the parents uh, that have been around much longer time period than the current crop of players, um, that they know better. And the players really should not be trying to step in and run things. Um, so I think there's an element of that there. Uh, and that might have actually been an element in the, in the case of Conn Smythe and, and, and Clarence Campbell and the, the real-life characters. Now, it's less obvious in the film. I think in the film, they come across, across as uh, uh, much more cynical, I think, than that. And uh, uh, clearly aware that what they're doing is, at least in some uh, aspects, illegal. Uh, especially with the Norris brothers. 
I mean, they're they're yes. they're particularly atrocious in this and, film. Yeah, and one thing you talk about the Norris family, and this was not mentioned in the movie, but it wonders if things could have transitioned more smoothly if they if ownership of the wings was kept with Marguerite Norris. Yeah, now after, explain who she is. Yes, because yeah. after James Norris, the father of the Norris family, the main guy, he died in the early fifties. Yeah. She took over the Red Wings from 1952 through 1955. They made the cup finals every one of those years in 54 and 55. They won it. The problem is that this was the 50s. People were not comfortable seeing a woman in charge, particularly Jack Adams. And Jack Adams saw this woman because he knew her since she was a little girl. So he figured, you know, why should I take orders from her? Mm -hmm. So he did not like working with her. and But she was... All the players respected her because you listen to interviews front with Gordie Howe or Ted Lindsay. They all admired her. She also was um, tried to keep. Uh, fit. She was installed nets around Olympia Stadium to make sure fit player, yeah. fans weren't hit with the puck. Way ahead of her time. Way ahead of her time with that. Other there were uh, there is other uh, notable measures think, she did. I um, think there were. She was particularly aware, if I recall correctly, of um, uh, the the obvious fact that uh, these guys had families right so she she did she instituted some measures to, to make it more make olympia more family friendly yes yes and um she was well admired but there was a power struggle after 55 in that championship and they with her brother bruce and basically they had her step down and bruce norris took over bruce yes. norris took over the team from 56 Till the early 80s when the Illiches brought it. Right. Anybody who knows Red Wings history, after that championship in 55, they didn't win another one until 1997. Yep. Now, in the late 50s and into the 60s, the team was still solid, competitive. They made the finals a few times, but they never won another one. And then that, that, Because that's still with the core of players mostly that they had from the 50s. And then after the 60s, once everybody left, including Gordie Howe, mm-hmm. The team just fell off completely, and it wasn't until the late '80s that they sort of yeah. got back on track. And that can be blamed to Bruce Norris, I think, because if Marguerite, I think, was still running at this time, she probably would have listened to Lindsay more, and she probably would have been a little bit more aware of the corruption that her family has yeah. started. And I, like I said, this is just speculation; you can't know a hundred percent. I think but you're I think right it, about she that. would have been able to find some sort of middle ground for the players. And I don't think she, I, I think she had the welfare of the team in mind first and foremost. And she did not think of it like Jimmy and Bruce did as uh, simply an object with which to extract profit. And you can see they only think of it that way because they're quite willing to get rid of Ted Lindsay and send him to Chicago, which is definitely a step down for him uh, in the interest of breaking up this effort to create a, uh, a players uh, association or union. I don't think she would have done that. I really don't. Mm-mm. And the extent to which they did that, um, or, or they were willing to do that just shows you that their loyalties weren't, I, I think they were in the following order um, to the ownership uh, cabal, you could say first. And then, uh, then to themselves personally, maybe second, and maybe those two are very close together. But then the, the team was third. The team was third. And it, it's a shame because Adams and Norris, they burned down practically their own house. They, yeah. just, they 
took that proud franchise that it was a dynasty at that time and just slowly but surely dismantled it just for you know, yeah and 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 you get the impression too i mean they, they they make threats in the film the the entire ownership you, you see con Smythe doing it with the with the leaves um all of these owners say they're quite willing to burn down the house of the nhl rather than allow these players to run their own pension or have a union and they exert a great deal of pressure and the irony is that the red wings at the end of the film voted down right after that successful pressure campaign based on that false uh, planting of false the false news that uh ted Lindsay had this monstrous contract in comparison to the others um they were willing to do that you know and it just it, it flies in the face of that claim that they just love the game you know again pr complete bs um but they were willing to do that and you know it is it is too bad that uh they didn't have other people with different priorities like marguerite i wonder what happened to her after that do you know um she left the red wings yeah. um she spent time doing other hockey organizations i believe around detroit or yeah. high school hockey or something but she never got back to, they never let her back unfortunately wow. yeah and the one tragedy i think in this movie one thing i do want to know is if maybe they were a little bit too harsh on gordy howe because at the end he just at the end when they try to after they give him the news he says i just want to play hockey yeah and so and the the reason why people were like, well, why are you, how did you find out about this movie? Because it is, um, I read a recent biography, autobiography by Gordy Howe, and yeah. he talks about this issue, which I had never heard before, and I could quote um, what he t- discusses. He goes, around the league, other teams were doing their part to break up the players' solidarity. The Players Association eventually fought back by filing an antitrust suit against the owners. Our locker room wasn't sure what was the best move. A lawsuit seemed like a precursor to a strike, and we believed that further negotiations were in order before we went that far. Before choosing to support the antitrust suit, we wanted to know more about its consequences. After a vote, we decided not to strike. Without a mandate from one of the league's six teams, the Players Association was put in a tough spot. The solidarity didn't last much longer, and the association disbanded after the owners made a few face-saving concessions and some vague promises to treat us better in the future. Looking back, it's easy to say now that we should have shown more resolve when the owners tried to crack us. I also accept that the situation might have turned out differently if I had taken on a larger leadership role. To be honest, though, I... No, my heart wasn't in organizing my teammates and fighting the owners. I just wanted to play hockey. Today, players are willing to stand up for what's right, and I admire that. The waters were much murkier in the 50s. Strikes were considered to be almost a communist activity. That was a tough perception to overcome. As someone who played in that era, I can also say that we weren't nearly as well-equipped to understand the bigger picture. He said, and this is the thing that always, that sort of intrigued me to check out this movie. He yeah. says, as a footnote to all of this, I should probably add a word or two about my relationship with Ted Lindsay. Before he was traded to Chicago, our friendship had been deteriorating for some time. In our earlier days with the Wings, we were as thick as thieves. Not only did we room together at Ma Shaw's, but he was also in my wedding party, and I even lived in his house after he married Pat. Mm-hmm. I have some remorse about how things turned out, but I also know that nothing lasts forever, not even friendships. 
Cracks and ours probably started. We went into business together. Ted said some things about me to our partners that were hard for me to get past. I'm sure I did some things he didn't like too much either. After his trade to Chicago and the whole rigmarole with the Players Association, mending fences became that much harder. Our relationship deteriorated further when I was in talks to return to the Red Wings shortly after he took over as the GM in the 70s. We're civil enough when we run into each other, but given the number of differences we had over the years, our contact is limited to a handshake. That doesn't stop me from smiling when I think about the good times we shared, but they were long ago. In the years since, I've had plenty of time to consider the nature of friendship. These days, I think of Ted as someone I once played with on a line and not much more. Yeah. So it's sad because I, I, I wonder because... If the movie's demonizing how or saying like he's, I, I didn't get that. I didn't I, get that. I, I didn't get that. I, I think it. I think it portrays him from what I've re- heard in that text fairly accurately. I don't. I, I. 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 He comes across as. I mean, I would say put yourself in your in his shoes. Yeah, he comes across as a bit naive, but also I think. Um, um, impressed with the fact that he's fortunate to play a game and get paid fairly well for it, even by the standards of that day, compared to other forms of work, which he does mention. He says at some point, you know, we've all held other types of jobs. He kind of remembers this. We work six months out of the year. We get, comparatively speaking, a decent salary. So I, I feel like perhaps I should actually uh, appreciate that and not rock the boat so much. Um, so I think that's how he comes across. I don't think yeah. he comes across as uh, callous. Uh, he comes across as conflicted. And it is a shame that that I think if a lot of people were in his shoes, I don't know how many people... I mean, we would say, oh, of course I would stand up. Yeah. But with that pressure and not knowing everything and then somebody feeding you this stuff, like, look, he's taken as much money than you. Yeah. He's, he's selfish. Then, yeah. You know, you would... Then you, would be almost be like like him. You just like I just want to play hockey and just yeah. forget about this whole thing. And and not to mention, you know, uh, salaries were uh, good by the standard of the day, but they weren't extravagant as they are by today's standards when mm-hmm. compared with salaries in other fields. Um, so you always have to worry about feeding yourself and your family and providing shelter and so forth. So that's a that's a a, a pressure and a legitimate pressure that I'm sure was also playing on his mind as well. And, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because, uh, you know, we, we both watched uh, the, the Wings in their heyday there in the late 90s and the t- 2000s when, when they would make the Stanley Cup finals or in the playoffs. And I always noticed this. Gordy would show up for these games, right? Ted Lindsay would show up for these games. They never appeared together. Even if they were in the rink the same game, I think they would, but it would like he even mentions, it would just be a handshake, more of a just keep yeah. it civil, but not but nothing more. Not on television, though. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They would, would they would show Ted behind the. I remember vividly the '97, the fourth game. He's he's behind the bench as they're just about to start that game, and they're interviewing him. And then a little while later, Gordy is shows up on the television too, but 
somewhere else and Teddy's nowhere in sight. And it is tragic because they look to be... I kind of wish they would mend that fence because at some point you just got to, you know, time heals all wounds. Right. Both those guys did so much for hockey. Yes. I mean, there's a reason why they call him Gordy Howe, Mr. Mr. Hockey. Hockey, yeah. Because he'd done so much for hockey. Not only that, but his sons played NHL. His son, Mark, Mark or Marty, forget which one, but he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah. It should mention, because I probably won't ever get to mention again, his wife, Colleen, is a reason why she's called Mrs. Hockey. It's not just because she married Gordy, but she um, helped uh, bring up minor league organizations around yes. uh, the U.S., and she helped build a lot of indoor hockey rinks in Michigan. So that whole family did a lot for the game. Yeah, yeah, and, it, and, and it's, it's a shame. And, and Ted, did, Ted also did a lot of service for hockey mm-hmm. just by starting the effort that's uh, uh, portrayed in this film. And you you do you you wish they had kind of overcome their differences and come together and say look look as a team we did pretty damn good on the ice and off the ice for the good of the NHL and that's something we should both be proud of and be able to kind of put aside our differences uh, as it were grow up a little bit about it and uh, mend those you know shake hands and mend that fence it's too bad they didn't it's yeah. it is tragic. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usn8.edu. There are enough podcasts in there to make you say bingo, bingo. It's no place for a nervous person. (laughs) Only people in Detroit are going to get these inside jokes. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior. You might be inter- if you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds. For each episode, I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. And that can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Keep that stick on the ice. Mm-hmm. Sing so long, and this game is over, gang. <laughs>